This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Today's episode is brought to you with the welcome support of Malby and Greek, UK's leading Greek delicatessen. Now, you don't uh, need me to tell you that um, obviously the Greek olive oil and olives are the best in the world. This is obvious. And of course, uh, Malbin Greek has um, some of the best ones in the UK. Malbin Greek also has some amazing Greek wines, which uh, you should try. And of course, um, some delicious Greek cheeses, which, again, they're underrepresented in the world scene. And um, apart from the most amazing feta you can find, uh, Malbin Greek has uh, other Greek cheeses which are extremely difficult to find even in Greece. So you better not miss your chance to shop there, as I do, and get your hands into some amazing Greek produce. For all you lucky listeners of the Delicious Legacy podcast, Malbin Greek has an amazing discount, uh, which you can claim if you go to malbingreek.com forward slash delicious, uh, where you can get a 15% discount. Yep, that's right, 15% discount off your next purchase. Go forth and shop Greek. Malpin Greek is UK's leading Greek delicatessen, supplier and distributor of premium Greek products, such as wine, herbs, cheeses or olive oil, from all over the wild corners of the country, working directly with small artisan producers. Malpin Greek, the one-stop shop for your Greek fix. Englishmen understand almost better than any other people the art of properly roasting a joint. An 18th century Swedish visitor to England. Hello! I'm Thomas Dinas and this is The Delicious Legacy Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the history of the most quintessential accompaniment for an English roast dinner, the Yorkshire pudding. Not extremely ancient, but very, very tasty indeed. Come in, sit down, relax, and enjoy our gastronomical adventure. A kind of an early boiled pudding, called threon, is described by the ancient Greek grammarian and gastronome Pollux. Lard, brains, eggs, and cream cheese 
were beaten together, the mixture then was wrapped in fig leaves, in the same way as puddings were tied in a cloth much later, and boiled in chicken or kid broth, then untied and given a final cooking in boiling honey. Julius Pollux was a Greek scholar and rhetorician from Naucratis in ancient Egypt. Emperor Commodus appointed him a professor chair of rhetoric in Athens at the Academy on the account of his melodious voice. Or at least that's uh, what we know according to Philostratus' Lives of the Sophists. Pollux died in 238 CE in Athens. A hearth is a brick or stone-lined fireplace, with or without an oven, used for heating and also for cooking food. For centuries, the hearth was such an integral part of home, usually its central and most important feature. This is seen by many expressions we have inherited and we keep using, like hearth and home, or keep the home fires burning. And of course, the word focus, which is a Latin word for hearth. Here I am, talking of hearths and fires, and, as you will soon find, about roasting meat. When I sat down to write this episode, my intention was to talk about Yorkshire pudding. But, inevitably, I had to dig deeper and find out the parallel and tightly connected stories of fire, roasting and meat, and how these are the leads to my search for puddings. This fateful encounter of pifat, flour and fire, is what helped us create the Yorkshire pudding. Life as it is, out of the great flat silency of butter. The Yorkshire is also the best, the fittest sidekick to a superhero. A superhero called Rose Beef, nevertheless. And a sidekick that some might say is of an almost equal importance to our superhero protagonist. And only by exploring all of the above, we can understand the pudding. Speed roasting is without a doubt, the finest technique ever devised for cooking meat. And the hearth was the center of the house and the life of the house. And this is, or at least it was true, for a humble home or a king's palace, all the same, with its roaring fires massive enough to feed a couple of oxen to roast. A single fire served to warm a house heat water for washing and cook dinner. For millennia, all cooking was roasting in one form or another. Charles Lamb, on his essay, A Dissertation Upon Roast Pig, starts with an apocryphal story, a myth from far enough in the world, China in this instance, to not be able to trace its origins regarding the origins of cooked meat and how mankind chanced upon its discovery. So, cutting a long story short, what um, Charles Lamb writes, according to the Chinese myth, is The first 70,000 ages, humans ate their meat 
clawing or biting it from the living animal. So according to this manuscript, the art of roasting was accidentally discovered by swineherd's son. The father, the swineherd Hoti, left the cottage, went into the forest to fetch food for the hogs, and left his eldest son, Bobo, in charge. A great, lubberly boy, who being fond of playing with the fire, and subsequently, due to his carelessness, burned down the cottage and the pigs, which was the family's fortune, together with a fine litter of new farrowed pigs, no less than nine in number. Charles Lamb continues. While he was thinking what he could say to his father and wringing his hands over the smoking remnants of one of those untimely sufferers, an odor assailed his nostrils, an odor unlike any scent which he had before experienced. He next stooped down to feel the pig, if there were any signs of life in it. He burned his fingers, and to cool them, he applied them into his mouth. Some of the crumbs of the scorched skin had come away with his fingers, and for the first time in his life, and in the world's life indeed, he tasted crackling. And, from there, so the story goes, The father tasted it, and then the whole village, and the rest, is history. A worthy pretext for a dangerous experiment, setting your house on fire, searching for the best delicacy in the whole world, which might be found in roasting pig. Of course, this is completely untrue. It's just a myth. And that's how Charles Lamb tells it to us, as a very unlikely myth. We know this, and we know more or less how humankind's love affair with the fire and roasting meat started. But, regardless, this story gives us a little bit of grounding on the importance of skillfully cooking a whole animal, and how Charles Lamb found that the apex of culinary pleasures uh, lied upon a roast pig. By the time he was writing this essay, in around 1823, though lot had changed already in our relationship with cooking and fire. But there were still houses with big kitchens and roaring fires in use, big enough to fit at least a mutton or a porker. An entire house was organized around an open hearth. How unusual it is now to have that arrangement. And also nowadays, we have plenty of other things to do and our cooking need to fit around our lives, rather than the other way around. And so, cooking by an open hearth went away, forgotten now, along with a host of related tools, andirons or brand irons, to stop logs rolling forward at either end of the fire. Hasteners, large metal hoods placed in front of the fire to speed up the cooking or to protect the cook from the heat. Spits of numerous kinds, from small and single-pronged to vast and five-pronged. Spit jacks to rotate the meat on the spit. Fire tongs and bellows to control the fire. And dripping pans to go under the fire to catch the fat dripping off roasting meat. And many, many other utensils, pots and forks and implements. The invisible and inevitable hand of progress made this entire way of life 
a life that supported cooking by an open hearth. Obsolete. Roasting meat before the fire went away, alongside with the complete culture that since then has been lost. Even the original word curfew was a completely different thing in meaning, a kitchen object, a large metal cover placed over the embers at night to contain the fire while people slept. As for cooking itself, it was largely the art of fire management. So roasting in its original sense was that it required, first, an open hearth, and second, rotation on a spit. The root of the word roast is the same as that of rotate. Was spit roasting by an open hearth the most prized method of cooking in Europe for hundreds of years, dirty and primitive? I can answer with a resounding no. On the contrary, it was frequently a highly controlled and sophisticated procedure with an advanced technology and its own remarkable cuisine. The French visitor Henri Misson, in his 1698 book about England, exclaimed in delight. Le pudding est un plat très difficile à décrire à cause des différentes sortes qui existent. Le pudding is a dish very difficult to be described because of the several sorts there are of it. Flour, milk, eggs, butter, sugar, thwet, marrow, resins, extra, are the most common ingredients. They make them 50 several ways. Blessed be he that invented pudding, for it is a manner that eats the palates of all sorts of people. Ah, what an excellent thing is an English pudding. Ah, quelle excellente chose qu'un pudding anglais. Of course, mixtures of minced meats, blood, oats or other grains, fruits and spices had been stuffed through funnels into animal guts and boiled for generations. These were the original puddings, but we want a different kind of pudding. Let's go deep down the time-traveling tunnel and find out the origins of the Yorkshire pudding. Come on. Uh, but before we go there, a little diversion, and let's talk about John Murrell in his 1617 collection, gave us a recipe for amber puddings. Always made like sausages from minced pork, almonds, breadcrumbs, ambergis, bruised musk and orange flower water. They were a regular feature of traditional 17th century dinners. Before we get into that, let's listen to our fellow podcaster Ancient History Hound telling us about his podcast about ancient Rome and Greece. Are you interested in ancient history and the occasional pun? If so, Ancient History Hound is for you. Hi, my name's Neil, and I'm the host of Ancient History Hound, a podcast which covers a range of topics across ancient Greece and Rome. Whether you're someone new to it all or a seasoned veteran, I've got you covered. Find Ancient History Hound wherever you get your podcasts from. Alternatively, visit my website, ancientblogger.com, or find me on Twitter, at ancientblogger. The last decade of the 1600s was notably cold, 
Six out of ten of these winters defined as severe across England and Scotland. Storms raged, and many losses of shipping occurred right across the country, from Tees Estuary to the waters of Kent. Areas were knee-deep in snow from January until the beginning of April. Bad harvests or failure of harvest subsequently followed after many summers over the decade. The countryside was abandoned. Farms and mills fell into disuse. In Scotland, in particular, the old harvest is said to have failed on seven out of ten years. It seems rather fitting, then, that the period from the 16th century to the 19th century is often referred as the Little Ice Age. And we can imagine that the households that could afford it, they would have huge raging fires burning all day, not just to cook their spit roasts, but to heat up the house and keep the rooms warm. At the same time, many of the poorer folk would have desperately tried to burn anything they could day and night to just keep away from the door the danger of death from freezing. This is of course something quite hard to understand now, in the middle of the summer, with a fairly mild climate and in our warm houses. I know, I know, but it was a constant struggle to keep houses back in the 17th century warm. With this in our mind, and against this background, we also see an explosion in commerce, in technology and other discoveries, of course. And even more so in food. Abundance in animal produce, new vegetables and fruits, some exotic, some from just around the corner, and new techniques in growing and preserving them led to many of the wealthiest classes of England's populace to record their recipes in writing and thus preserve them for us too. Due to the above, or as a result of the extreme weather, the hearth tax was abolished in Scotland. Basically, this was uh, a tax that householders required to pay and paid two shillings per annum for, for each hearth. Notably, it was abolished a year before in England. In the same decade, apparently August the 4th, 1693, Dom Perignon invented the champagne. Well, that's another myth, I'm afraid. It has to do more perhaps with the cold winters of the Champagne region, especially at the period that we've seen. Temperatures could drop very low, that the fermentation process was prematurely halted, leaving some residual sugar and dormant yeast. So when the wine was shipped to and bottled in England, the fermentation process would restart when the weather warmed again and the cork-stopped wine would begin to build pressure from carbon dioxide gas. When the wine was opened, it would be bubbly, and thus perhaps champagne, the drink as we know it, as a side effect, was created. But we won't uh, concern ourselves with such trivial matters as wines gone bad. For we have bigger concerns. Our quest for the perfect Yorkshire pudding. Early on that decade, in 1690s as we've seen, Anne Blenko married to a justice of the peace in Brackley, Northamptonshire. Being an excellent housewife, she filled her own household book with pages of handwritten recipes for pudding. As she scratched in the details of a recipe from Lady Clark or Miss Siddle, with a cut end of a feather dipped in ink, 
some vegetables such as cauliflower was beginning to be cultivated more generally. And gourds, pumpkins and other such pompions, cucumbers and French beans, were also being tossed into delicious nutritious puddings. Medieval dances, a pancake type of thing, with butter flavoured with a herb tansy, had metamorphosed from pancake to pudding. Within a generation, that most British of all puddings, the Yorkshire, would appear for the first time. A batter of milk, eggs, salt and flour poured into the hot fat of the dripping pan under roasting meat. Once it had arrived, it was hard to think of a time when it had not existed. The original purpose of serving the butter pudding was not as a part of a main meal in the way that it's served with traditional roast dinners now, but instead served before, with gravy, as an appetizer course. This is because when meat was expensive, the Yorkshire pudding could act to fill the consumer, meeting the appetites of working men and allowing the meat to stretch further. Them that eats the most pudding gets the most meat, as the saying goes. The pudding would have originally been cooked beneath the meat, usually beef, as it was roasting on the spit above a fire. This position would have meant that the fats and juices from the meat could drip onto the butter pudding, flavouring and adding colour. The initial name for cooking a butter in this way was dripping pudding. This also meant that these drippings, essential in the diet, were utilised rather than lost to the fire. Sources of these essential fats, particularly in the north of England, were more difficult to obtain at the time, especially with the high cost of meat, so every single drop was used. So effective were they in taking the edge of hunger that they were served in the first course giant, enormous mounds of sustenance that arrived before the costlier meat was introduced. It was a practice that in Yorkshire led quickly to the expression we saw above. Puddings were so very, very English, and along with the roast, seduced visitors from abroad. In 1720s, César de Saussure agreed with Henry Misson, writing, This is a very, very good dish, and I have never yet met with a foreigner who did not appreciate it. The exact origins of the Yorkshire pudding are unknown the general consensus being that it is a dish associated with the north of England. The prefix Yorkshire was first used within a publication by Hannah Glass in 1747 called The Art of Cookery Made Plain and Simple. This distinguished the light and crispy nature of the butter puddings made in this region from butter puddings created in other parts of England. The definition of pudding was her main problem, Hannah Glass's main problem. The immediate thought is of sweet desserts. However, originally, pudding was meat-based, as we've seen. Sausage-like food uh, in Britain, like we still have uh, black and white uh, puddings. However, by the late 18th century, the contemporary puddings were no longer meat-based, and this change, incidentally, coincided with the first published mentions of the butter pudding. Not only is the traditional Yorkshire pudding a savoury dish, but it's also served with or before the main course, not as a pudding or dessert, which uh, confuses most of us uh, who learn English as a second language and know it as a sweet last course of a meal. 
Yorkshire pudding is traditionally cooked in large shallow tin and then cut into squares to be served, rather than the individual puddings you can buy in the supermarkets today. Also in today's Sunday roast dinners, Yorkshire puddings are included whatever the choice of meat, rather than just with beef as it's the tradition. Yorkshire puddings, as the accompaniment to the British Sunday roast, have become such a part of the British institution that they have been nominated their own day of celebration, the first Sunday of February. And with this, I'm going to leave you with my own recipe and method of cooking the Yorkshire puddings for the best, easiest, home-cooked Yorkshire puddings ever. Not that they're difficult to make, and not that um, I devised this uh, recipe out of my head. Um, I've tried a few different ones, and obviously I read things, and um, yeah, whatever actually was good, um, I kept it from different uh, people. Because everybody has their own methods and their own tips and tricks and techniques. And I think this one works really well uh, every time. And it's really good. um, And it's really easy to make. Okay, so my recipe for the best modern Yorkshire pudding that you can make at home. So this is for 10 or 12 little fluffy clouds of heavenly taste. Your ingredients you need. 140 grams of flour, 4 eggs, 200 ml of milk, a bit of salt, 2 grams. Now, whisk all the ingredients together and leave the mixture covered in the fridge to rest overnight, at least 12 hours. So you need that amount of time. It's important that the mixture is resting. That's how you will achieve a big rise on your on your puddings. Next day, when you're ready to cook, obviously, you've done your roast dinner, it's ready, it's resting. Time to cook the puddings. Turn on the oven. Full blast, 230 degrees Celsius. Preheat the oven and then put the tray with the fat, the beef dripping, which we just said, inside until it's smoking hot. Once that's done, pour the mixture, the Yorkshire pudding mixture, into the muffin tray and um, yeah, cook it for about 20 minutes. You'll see when they're ready. It's more than 15 minutes and usually near 20 minutes. You'll see them rise and become perfect little tasty morsels to accompany your roast dinner. And this is it. That's a history of, you, of the Yorkshire pudding and a modern recipe to make it at home and make it easily and tasty. Okay, I would like to give a big shout out to my Patreon backers. Bin, Javert, Elaine, Lillian, Joseph, Alexis, Steve Holloway, Leah Potts, Lauren Gaither, Dimitris, Christopher Banks, Dwight Brown, Zeynep T, Philly Eropoulos, Stereos Hadzikiriakidis, Andrew Cabanis, Dimitris Milonas, Andrew Kenrick, Rachel, Tom Eagle, Greg Duncan, 
Mark Knight, Damien Bell, Andrew Price, Paul Cooper. Thank you for listening. I've been Thomas Dinas, and this was The Delicious Legacy. Remember to subscribe on my Patreon page, where you get the podcasts early, and you get extra recipes, uh, writings, essays, articles, musings, and photos about ancient food and ancient cooking, historical recipes, and so on and so on. And all that from $3 per month. Please sign up and subscribe there in Patreon to help me create these podcasts. And I can do it with your help better and more often as well too. Remember to subscribe on Acast, iTunes and Spotify and wherever else you get in your podcasts from. Plus rate and review the podcast so more people can uh, discover it. Thank you for listening. Have a lovely rest of the week. Goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.